Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast that explores the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with artists, creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and changemakers. Today's guest on Getting Work to Work is Tim Tortora, an ex-movie producer and outsourced CFO for producers in Hollywood who has poured his wisdom of a 30-year career into a book, How to Make It in Hollywood, What Writers, Directors, Actors, Producers, and Crew Need to Do to Break In. In this conversation, Tim explains what goes into the production process and how it's like catching lightning in a bottle. He also shares how to make a career in Hollywood, avoiding the Hollywood con men, and how technology is changing the industry. Whether you want to land your dream job in Hollywood or run a thriving creative business closer to home, you need to hear what Tim says. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 606. Well, Tim, welcome to Getting Work to Work. I'm looking forward to talking with you today about the things that you are passionate about and all things Hollywood. I love it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I ask everyone this question because I'm curious about it, but what are you endlessly curious about? Oh, geez, everything. Lately, it's been uh, energy and how that affects the economy. I'm a CFO now at this point in my career, and I came up as a finance guy. So understanding that and how it's going to change our world is what I've been endlessly fascinated about and how our industry is changing and evolving. I'm in it every day, and it, it, it just technology is changing everything, and it's specifically my business. Right. What is it about energy? Is it is it like gas prices? Is it like solar energy? Is there one area that you're curious in general about? It's kind of everything, but sort of high level, the idea that we as a society or as a race are going to eliminate fossil fuels from our existence tomorrow or even in five or 10 years is folly just because of the scale of what it is. It probably needs to happen. In fact, probably is the wrong word. It does need to happen. And it will happen, but how's that going to happen? And what change is going to come as a result of it? And just understanding at what scale is energy uh, executed or pulled out of the ground or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and the history of it, how did that come to prominence, uh, is interesting, fast, endlessly fascinating to me. And it's it's a huge subject with a lot of passion and angry people on both sides, drill, baby, drill, and the world is ending tomorrow. It's like, <laughs> right. get those people in a room and there's going to be a lot of dead bodies, right? And then there's me who's like, <laughs> Okay, what's real? What's reality? So yeah, that, that's why it's fascinating. Yeah, I I have a client who does a lot of stuff uh, on climate change, and what was fascinating was they were she was looking at solar energy in particular, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until you start thinking about like it's one thing to be a homeowner and have like the ability to plug in your vehicle right. or to even have solar energy, but what if you lived in an apartment? Right. Yeah, you have yeah. no place to plug in your electric car. Or you're mm-hmm. going to mandate to all the landlords in America or in where I live in Los <laughs> Angeles, you have to provide 220 plug-in with the thing for the Tesla. Really? Right. <laughs> Who's going to pay for that? The landlords? Right. Where's that going to come from? My rent. Exactly. It, it's a cycle. It's it's supply and demand. It is econ 101 and everything boils down to it. I, I like to say there are two people who run the world, bankers and lawyers. And that's true. <laughs> Yeah. Most of us failed econ 101, as we can see. Yeah. Well, I got a C and I tried, I worked really hard for that C. (laughs) Nice. And and my way, my brain is wired for that kind of work. It's what I do for a living. And it's, 
you know, whatever it was, 35 or 40 years ago when I was in school, it just, wow, it just made my brain melt. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember like not to go too deep in the weeds on like micro and macro economics, but I remember it was like they were teaching us about economics as it relates to traffic and what happens when you tap your brakes and how it affects the backup. And right. that that blew my mind that they could study things like that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And you can do that across all parts of the economy and all kinds of human behavior, which is one of the reasons I love Stephen Levitt and Dubner. I think they're fascinating oh, yeah. people. I love their podcast. It's pretty good. Yeah, their their books are fascinating. I'm reading their one right now that's a collection of their best blog posts. Oh, wow. That's cool. I, that'd yeah. be interesting. I, I read Freakonomics and I was like, what? You can study <laughs> the drug trade as an economist? What? Yeah. And I was like, okay, turn my world upside down. I was, it kind of, kind of turned me into a stone thrower in Hollywood. I was like, well, wait a minute. If these guys are doing it there, how can we do that in my business? How can this be different? Right. That that is such a fascinating question too. Like, have you always been wired that way to look at something and be like, "How can we apply this over here to what you're doing here?" I have, yeah, I've always been that way. And and the movie business is a. And when I say the business, I mean my part of it, which is, I came up in physical production, so I was one of the people who was on a set or in a in an office managing the people on a set and the financial aspect and physical logistics of it not the creative. I knew at an early part of my career that I was the guy with the most obvious idea in the room and I was going to be terrible at that. So I just didn't <laughs> pursue it. And that's fine. Yeah. You know, I, I have ideas and they all, all the creatives look at me and go, okay, that's cute. We did that when we were in the fifth grade. Um, but you know, at a young age, I, I, I realized that there's the, there are systems that you can break down and pull apart. And so many people have tried to do it in film production and they all walk away. Every management consultant who comes and watches what we do for a living to make content. When I say content, meaning movies and TV, uh, mm -hmm. TV shows, they all look at it and they throw their hands up and say, uh, sorry, we can't make it better. It's just what it is. Good luck. Oh, that'll be a $500,000. Thank you very much. But you know, it still is, it's studied repetitively. Even the tech guys are trying to figure out how to make it more efficient and they cannot figure it out because it isn't. You are mm -hmm. catching lightning in a bottle. And it is just not a process you can break down at the, at the top scale of what's going to be successful or not. Right. But what you can break down is, well, wait a minute. If I have three grips and I'm working five days and I can save some money and I can shorten the amount of time it takes to get grip and electric set up so camera can roll and actors can be going and I turn a one hour into a 55 or 50 minute hour of a day and I can get more setups and I can get more camera roll time with an actor in front of it wait a minute, that, that adds up over a 50 day schedule. That's real time. And that's a real amount of work that you can add to it. So looking at those really little droplets in a giant ocean yeah. is just how my brain's been wired since I started doing this job in the early nineties. And, and I threw myself into it. I was good at it. I learned at a young age how to do it and that I could excel at it. And I got very lucky that that came to me when I was 25, whereas some people don't happen until they're in their forties. The first thing I started thinking of was Superman three, where, you know, there's, they're stealing pennies mm -hmm. to uh, make a ton of money and, and like to save money at that little, at that small scale is fascinating. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, m making movies isn't honestly that different than putting bolts on a Ford to make a car. They're, it's the same. <laughs> yeah. It's assembly line. It takes hundreds or even thousands of people to make a movie. I mean, even a, five million, and that's a small budget dollar mm -hmm. feature or episode of television. You're talking about employing 100 and 
20 to 200 people, actors, crew, extras, all of it. So you're dealing with a large amount of people, which you could quantify into data because they work a certain amount of days and time, they do a job and so on. You can quantify that and you can put it into a workflow. So you're doing that at scale and at speed. That's what we do in entertainment that's different. That's what we do in production that's different than just about any other industry. We're still putting bolts in a Ford. We're making a car at the end, whether it's a green car or a purple car or whatever. We're still making cars. We just happen to call it movies and TV. That's not different. What is different is that we're doing at speed and scale where if you're making a car, it takes five years to develop it. It may take you a few weeks or months to actually manufacture the facility that's going to build them. We do those things in a matter of weeks. So we'll scale up, we'll create a company, we'll scale it up from zero employees to 200 or even 1,000 employees in about anywhere from four weeks to 12 weeks. We'll shoot a movie anywhere from 15 days if you're making TV movies for Lifetime and Hallmark up to 115 days if you're making Spider-Man or a Superman feature. (laughs) And then yet scale all scales down where you just have a couple editors on for a few weeks or months onto a year, and then you finish a movie, you deliver it to a studio or a network, and it winds up on the air or on a TV screen. So what a, a your average manufacturing facility would take years to do, we do in a matter of weeks. So you're having to make decisions, assimilate information and data at speed and at scale. I get excited hearing that too, because like, unless you're addicted to that speed and scale that can be incredibly overwhelming yeah it's not for everyone i've actually seen people come and absolutely crater they just look like a deer that's about to get run over by a truck (laughs) and they go away or they go into some part of the business that isn't it's speed and scale and Mm -hmm. or they go into smaller projects or whatever it's not for everyone and that's a lesson i think people learn you know it takes them a long time to figure it out because they're like, I'm supposed to do this. I love this. I think it's amazing, mm-hmm. but it's not for everyone. Right. It's that that uh, rose-colored glasses in terms of like get on the bus, you know, show up on the <laughs> streets of LA, get a job, get famous. I mean, that's yeah. still alive and well in our society's story. It is, and it 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 leaves an op- a lot of opportunity for what I call the Hollywood con man to find a mark, and the Hollywood con man steals your time, steals your money. And in some cases, uh, can actually steal your finished product. So there's three different kinds of theft in the movie business that I call theft, which is wage theft, uh, distribution theft, and actually money theft where they steal from investors. So Mm -hmm. I wrote a book about how do you come to Hollywood if you don't know anybody? I'm a guy. I'm the son of two Orange County entrepreneurs. I grew up in Fullerton, California. Okay. My parents were in the printing and the travel industry. And they wound up building their own businesses in the 80s and in the 90s. And I graduated from college knowing nobody in Hollywood. And I built a (laughs) successful career out of that. And I got lucky. I met some very important people. I worked on some really big projects. And some of it was me luck. Some of it was me at the right time in the right place and recognizing an opportunity and taking advantage of it. But what I've done is I've taken that knowledge and I've seen a pattern of who is successful and who isn't. And I distilled it down into a process. Back to your early question, is that something you do all the time? It is. I took that process of getting off a bus, coming here and recognizing how not to get hosed by the Hollywood con man. And there is a system. There, there is a language, there's a system, and there's an art to how you do it. And my book breaks it down for people who don't understand that, who have no idea who, who, how it works 
or who to talk to. And it, it sets you up in a way where you research, what is you, what do you want to do? What shows do you love? Who works on them? And how do I go get connected to those people? Because this is a referral business. If you don't get a referral, you're not going to get a job. What I love about that is you you have broken down observation and experience into a system without giving it all away, because of course we want people to get the book and read it. Uh, what is the first step of the system? So it begins with identifying, uh, first of all, it begins with understanding what the industry is. There are five or six verticals in the industry. It's feature film, it's dramatic television, and that's usually defined by single count camera, sometimes multi-camera, but usually single camera. And it's shot the same way. And there's multi-camera sitcom, there's reality TV, there's award shows, there's sports. There's just kind of about a half dozen verticals in the business. Understand what vertical you like, what are you interested in? And you do that by just looking at what shows you love. What do you love? You build a list. Out of that 20 or 30 list, what is the commonality against all of those? And you're going to have some outliers. You're going to throw those away. And then you're going to choose that vertical. And I give a list of what they are. And you're going to ask yourself, what job do I want to do? I want to act, want to write, direct, produce, or do I want to work on crew? And there are 250,000 people who work in crew. There's another (laughs) 100,000, 150,000 actors, writers, directors, and producers who work in Hollywood. It's about three to 400,000 W-2s that get issued by the payroll services for people who specifically work in film production. It's super consolidated. So we can we can quantify that number. Yeah. So there's a lot of jobs available and you got to figure out what do you want to do? And then once you do that, you take the list that you created of your favorite shows and you start researching who are the people on those shows and you rank them as far that are similar, that are doing the job you ultimately want to do. And some of them are low level people and some are mid-level, some are high level. Like you're going to get Joss Whedon, right? As an example, he's a guy, everyone loves his content. A lot of people do. And they want to meet him. You're not going to meet Joss Whedon. Are you going to meet his assistant? Yes. Are you going to meet his subordinate who's maybe three or four levels down who writes on the shows that he has produced or worked on? Possibly. Can you make a connection to those people? And then I show people how to make that connection. And Mm -hmm. the most important thing is you do informational interviews Mm -hmm. and you just sit down and listen and you never, ever ask for a job. You don't ask to read your script, watch your short, come to your showcase or look at your material. You just listen to them. And then at the end, you say, hey, I'm looking for a job. I'm looking for a job as a, and it's probably going to be an assistant job. And we'll help you guide you into what those job definitions are and what's best for your track. And then you just say, I'm I'm looking. Here's my resume. If you know someone who's looking for that job, feel free to throw my name around. That's how it begins. That's fabulous. I mean, the whole idea of an informational interview is so fabulous, no matter what industry you're going into anyway. I mean, just to ask questions and listen is a brilliant way to start. Yeah. And you need to, you have to remember, my grandfather used to say something and it stuck with me, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm not young and it's been with me forever, which is, look, kid, you're given two eyes and two ears and one mouth for a reason. Listen more <laughs> than you talk. And it's a true, it's a, such a true axiom. And when you sit down in that informational, you're not going to peacock around and talk about all the stuff you've worked on. Mm-hmm. You might talk a little bit about what movies you love. You might talk a little bit about what you love that they've done in the past without having to lick them up and down and talk about how great they are. Cause I mean, that's kind of embarrassing, honestly. <laughs> they right? get that enough as it is, but you can talk about what content you love and you may strike up a, com- a commonality in that, in that conversation. So that's really all it is, is just having a casual conversation with people and not being salesy, salesy douchebag guy. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I want to hire me, buddy. <laughs> Why? 
what have you done? How are you going to help me? Because that's honestly mm-hmm. the conversation they're asking in their head. How can right. this person help me? Yeah. And if you're just starting, I mean, you, you can't to some degree. Well, actually, you'd be surprised because the one thing you have as a person who's starting out, and typically you're young, that's mm-hmm. a commonality in that, that, that conversation, which is you have a lot of time. You don't have kids. You don't have an expensive lifestyle. You can come work for cheap. You will work seven days a week. And by the way, you'll work seven days a work and you, week and you'll not get paid for it. That's just what it is. I know there's all kinds of talk about the law and blah, 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 blah. But it, <laughs> it's if you're going to distinguish yourself, you're going to take your time, your free available time, and convert it into help for the people who can pull you up. It doesn't mean you have to be exploited. It doesn't mean you have to do anything immoral or illegal. Mm-hmm or do stuff that you sh- that you think doesn't feel right or doesn't fit within your perception of the world. But if you're okay with taking your available time and working seven days a week and plowing all your time and energy into that job, you will excel in this business and you will do very well, especially if you love entertainment. Because you got to love it to work here because it is hard work. Yeah. It's hard work, it's laborious, it's time consuming, and most of the jobs in the beginning, they just suck. It's a fact <laughs> of life. <laughs> I think I saw that you were at, what was it, a tape recorder when you started? I started out as a tape op in a recording studio as a as an intern. I worked for free for like two years, not not like 40 hours a week. I probably worked three or four nights a week in the early days. But I worked on a Poison, Poison's first record, which was a big hair band in the <laughs> mid to late 80s. And Is that look what the cat dragged in? Yeah, it was. It was, it nice. was exactly that record. Those dudes had just landed in LA. They were nobody. In fact, <laughs> I was doing an impression of CC DeVille once and he walked in the room and he's, hey man, is that, you're doing an impression of me? And I'm like, oh, sorry, dude. He goes, nah, this is funny. Keep going. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> anyway. It, um, yeah. I mean, I got, I got lucky. I was working with some people who turned out to be pretty famous and that stuff matters on your credits, on your resume. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the other thing I tell young people who get into my my book and into my Q&A sessions, which is don't worry about the job you're going to do, the title. Don't worry about the money. You got to make a living. You don't want to work for free forever. Mm-hmm. Do it a couple of times, but not all the time. Um, don't worry about what you're going to make and what you're going to be, what your title is. Worry about who you work with. This is a business of star fuckers. Sorry, pardon my French. Go they, for it. It's all good. They want to know that you have learned the skills of dealing with big names. And if you haven't done that, you haven't worked on big projects, they're they're gonna pick the person who has. So be more mindful about the people you work with. You wanna work with producers who have stuff on the air, who had movies in the movie theater in the past 18 months. Those are the people who are working. They're consistent. There's not a lot of them. And then we do a lot of, I talk a lot about in the book about how the industry is structured and who you wanna work for and who you wanna avoid. And that's super important. Worry yeah. a lot less about what you're going to make and what your title is. Worry about who you're going to work with. And more importantly, who are you going to learn from? Who's that person? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the find a mentor, that conversation. I get so bored by it because it's such an embarrassing conversation. Hey, buddy, will you be my mentor? <laughs> who wants to have that conversation, right? <laughs> so it's more like, it's more, I, re, I like to view it more of a sponsor. There's going to mm-hmm. be someone in the room who understands you, understands your work ethic, when it comes time to hire in a new position, that person's gonna say, hire Tim. He's good at this. I think he can do it. You should give him a shot. Or who, whatever your name is, right? right. You wanna find that sponsor, the person who could be the, the, the sponsor for you, and you wanna stick to him like a barnacle and, and continue to stay connected to them over the course of your career. You may find mentors, but 
They won't always know you're their mentor. You're just going to emulate their behavior. But you don't have to go up to them and say, hey, buddy, will you be my mentor? It's just, it's such a dumb conversation and it's a dumb <laughs> idea. And people and, and coaches who say find a mentor, it's like, really? Uh, come on, really? That's what I'm paying for? It's just right. bad advice. Well, and I love the I love the whole concept of sponsor as well because in in a way it takes the pressure off them of of having to have that label of mentor, and just you know you can emulate them like you're saying exactly. And you know finding mentors is not a bad thing, but that's going to come in your career as you excel and as you move on. And you should remember a mentor is someone who doesn't have your best interest necessarily inside an organization in mind. Mm-hmm. What they're more interested in is your best interest as it as it uh, radiates out in the industry or in the wider world, not in the organization that you're working on. That's kind of the difference between a mentor and a sponsor. A mentor might guide you on a wider vision of your career, and there's nothing wrong with looking for that and having it in your life. In fact, it's very helpful. But just understand the distinction between mentor and sponsor. I talk a little bit about that in the book as well, about how you... What's the difference and what's the distinction between the two? And how do you approach that conversation in a way that doesn't feel sleazy or kind of right. you know, dumb? It is interesting, Tim. How do, you, how do you set yourself up to be in a position to be lucky? Is it just doing whatever you can as you can and you might get lucky? It is. It, to some extent, yes. Uh, and I always add that, yeah, you got to do what you can, but you don't want to participate in illegal or immoral behavior, right? <laughs> and you're the only one who can make those decisions. Illegal is obvious. Immoral is not. That's, that's the individual. But I don't think it's just that. I think it's, it's also the idea that you have to kind of have your antenna up and constantly be looking, and you have to be within proximity of people in power right? Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons I'm convinced, one of the reasons I excelled at a young age was two things. Number one, early in my career, I worked on big features. I worked for an ad agency on only movie account on Sony, which at the time was Columbia Pictures and TriStar Pictures. They weren't part of Sony yet, or they had just become part of Sony. At any rate, uh, I worked on big movies, The Doors, Bugsy, Total Recall, Terminator 2, huge features (sighs) that I could put on my credits, right? Wow. Was I a 23-year-old snot nose who knew nothing? Absolutely. Did I have any power? Mostly. I sat in a room making strategic plans around advertising campaigns. But those titles said something to the people at Harpo Films when I went to when I went to go work for them to take over the job as head of physical production when I was 30, managing an $89 million piece of business for Oprah Winfrey and tele- long-form television. And for features, I didn't do the show in Chicago. I just did the, the two-hour TV movies we made for ABC. And wow. the woman who hired me was looking for this job, and she saw my credits and went, oh, okay, that matters. So some of it was my past, and some of it was proximity. I was a production accountant on, the, on a movie that uh, I recognized an opportunity. This company was about to blow up. They were going to be doing a lot of work. There were three people in an office. And they didn't have enough staff to handle the amount of work that they had just sold to the network. And I had seen an ad, or I had seen an article in the trades that Kate Forte, who was the woman who hired me, who I am grateful to this day for giving me that opportunity. But um, I remember reading prior to taking that job that they had just sold a series of six movies to ABC. And I was Oof. like, okay, these folks are going to need this. So I stuck to her like a barnacle and tried to be as close to and just casual conversation just you know striking up a friendship not salesy give me a job kind of nonsense it was just like 
what interested me. And she and I struck up a friendship and she gave me a job and that turned wow. into the beginning of my career as an executive. So that's really cool. It's part luck. It's part recognizing an opportunity. I read everything, right? Obviously, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have known about the fact that there was, I wouldn't have been able to project the idea that there could be an opportunity here had I not read the article that they just sold something to ABC. That's part of it. So it's part opportunity and it's being connected to people and on shows with producers who are actually making content. That's super important. <laughs> yeah. How do you balance that with the, uh, the overall vision for your career? Yeah, uh, me, I just said yes to everything, honestly. <laughs> I never said no if it didn't suit me, if I wasn't interested, you know, even if I wasn't all, I well, look, you're going to work on things you love. You're going to work on things that you hate. And to quote Michael Caine, I've worked on a lot of movies and I've worked on a lot of crap. And that's <laughs> true of everybody in this business. You're never always going to have the opportunity to have, never always, listen to that. Anyway, you're not always <laughs> going to have the opportunity to work on things you're passionate about, that you care about. Sometimes right. they're just money jobs and you shouldn't kill yourself or beat yourself up about that. You got to make a living. This is a hard business to make a living in. And if you can, and you can do it for long term, you've done better than 95% of the people who try. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just, I say yes to everything, but that wasn't the only thing I knew when I was 25, when I was leaving advertising, I didn't want to work in advertising anymore. I kept, I kept getting offers to get promoted. And I knew I didn't want to do that. And I knew I wanted to work in film production. So I went to go work on a TV show called Dream On. And that's where I really figured out what I was good at, which was finance and budgets and physical logistics. And in the process of that, of leaving advertising to go to work from the studio, to go work in physical production, I said, I'm, my goal when I'm 30, or at least by the time I'm 31, I want to have a job working as a production executive for an independent producer who makes TV and or features. And I did exactly that. I didn't know who it was going to be. I didn't target them. I just, in the back of my head, I wrote down what my goal was. And I said, that's my goal. And I did that for five, six years. And I got exactly, and I, and by the way, I set this goal when I was 25, 24, <laughs> I got it when I was 30. And I found that strip of paper in, in a desk drawer at some point when I was moving, like, holy cow, I actually pulled it off. Um, but writing it down and putting it in the back of my head, I'm convinced my subconscious was like, okay, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. That's where okay. we're going. You got to do that. And it has to be realistic. And you have to sort of look backward at what your goal is. My long-term high-level goal was to run a studio. Mm -hmm. And as I got promoted within and got more responsibility within Harpo, I started to get more connected to the studio executives who could put me into the next job, which could ultimately lead me into being a production executive or uh, running a studio. And I, as I started to see those people's lives, I said, mm -hmm. I don't want to be that. <laughs> and, and I, I just was like, I don't want, so my, my goal changed my long-term vision of running a studio. I didn't want that life. It was, it was too much of driving in the race car and not having an, it's, it's like not having enough control, not having enough mm -hmm. decision-making about your life. You're basically mm -hmm. hanging on to a tiger's tail as it's running through the jungle. That's <laughs> that job. And I was like, I don't know that I want to have that life. And I don't want, yeah. and I wanted to raise a family and I wanted to have that kind of life. So I just kind of scaled it back. I switched. I changed my, when I got to be 40, 45, um, I, I had been married. I was about to have a kid and I, I decided I didn't want to work in film production in the trenches anymore. So I transitioned into the CFO job I have now. And, mm -hmm. you know, that came by seeing an opportunity and just looking around and yeah. setting a goal. I love that. What I love about it too is like 
there's a tendency at times, I think, to get stuck in your identity, to be like, this is what I'm, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do forever. Yeah. But to have that flexibility and that willingness to follow the opportunity and to grow into the next chapter of your life. I mean, that's powerful to witness. Yeah. And I think you have to have a, um, a, a level of candor with yourself that you're clear <laughs> about. And that a lot of people don't have. They don't know what they want and they're not very honest with themselves. You don't have to be honest with your with the people around you about your your faults and your boogers, right? But you do need <laughs> to be with yourself. Yes. And if you're not able to do that and not willing to do that, you might struggle. I don't know if you definitely will, but I have a feeling most people in successful places are mm -hmm. unbelievably candid and savage with themselves. They don't necessarily have to share with everybody. And they probably don't because that's not a fun conversation to be around. That's we call that a train wreck and drug addicts, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but nonetheless, if you can do that with yourself and you look around and go, I'm not happy here. What will make me happy and what can I change in my life to make myself happy without blowing up what I have now? That's a key thing. Just mm. because you're unhappy doesn't mean you need to throw everything away and blow it up. Right. You gotta figure out. What's the transition? What's the timeline? How am I going to get to where I can find happiness for myself in my career or my life? And what's the timeline to do it? And I think those are conversations that a lot of people don't have. They act emotionally. They don't think strategically about how do I stay in a lifestyle if that's what I want to do? Or how do I change my lifestyle so I go do something that's less stressful or maybe more stressful or whatever? Yeah. And I think that's mm. a lot of candor with yourself. Yeah. What a, what a great lesson, though. I think there's there's something that everyone needs to hear in that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's hard. I've done it at least twice. I can remember when I was getting, I was about to get the next job uh, from the job at, at working for uh, Columbia Pictures and TriStar. I was going to get the job as a media supervisor at for an agency working on Universal Pictures. And wow. the pay was three times what I was going to make. I mean, it was like more money than I had made at that point in my life. And I was 24, I think, 25, something like that. Wow. And I just, I walked away from it to take a job as a $400 a week PA for three days of guaranteed work. <laughs> it's like, holy cow, what am I doing? And that was the beginning of my career in production. And it's been 35 years. As you, as you look forward, you know, do you plan every five years or do you plan just, you know, every three years at this point? That's an interesting question. I don't know that I've ever, I, I don't break it down that way. Hmm. I think for me, it's more of, I do the thing that interests me, that keeps me occupied. I have a very <laughs> active brain. Like I'm interested in tons of stuff, right? We talked yeah. about energy in the beginning, but uh, you know, I, I can write code. I'm one of those 50 something year old people who can actually write code in PHP and various That's awesome. other languages. Cause I was curious. I've never made yeah. a living doing it, but hmm. I love doing it. And so um, for me, that kind of thinking and planning is more looking around going, okay, what am I interested in and what's sort of, where do I want to, what do I want to do with it? And then, I, but at the mean, in the meantime, I'm doing this thing, right? I'm, I'm at the moment, I'm a CFO, right? Yeah. This, I've been doing this job long enough now where it's enough, it's rote enough that I can make mistakes if I'm not paying attention, right? Even though mm -hmm. I'm pretty good at it and I've been doing it a long time. So, and that involves currency transactions across borders and across time and borrowing money from banks and managing that leverage and so on and so forth, right? And the cost associated with that and 
and then managing the people on the ground who are in the financial trenches. So it's complex and it, I, it, it can get messy if I'm not paying attention or not hiring the right people to help me out. The, the, to the answer your question, that's a good example of a timeline where right now I'm looking around going, okay, I've been doing this for about 11 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. And what's the next thing? Well, CEO, do I want that job? Not really. Do I want to run a film company? I really don't, honestly. <laughs> I think our business is over, at least the business I came up in. Our yeah. business is high volume, low margin, creating, quote, content. I came to the movie business. I didn't come to the content business. I came to the TV <laughs> business. I didn't come to the YouTube business. Right. So tech is changing our business. And I'm actively looking around at what do I want to do? How do I want to take this experience that I have had and continue for another 10 or 20 years? I, by the way, I never intend on retiring. Um, I'll work until I'm dead. But um, the question is, what interests me and what are my goals? And, the, and right now I'm asking that very question you're asking me. So I'm not able to answer it because I'm looking mm-hmm. around going, what do I want to do? I love what I do. <laughs> right. I'm a little bit bored. And where is it going to go in the next 10 years? I don't know the answer. So I do it about every five years. It probably shows up for me where I'm like, I'm bored. What do I do? So I think the succinct answer is I don't do it on any kind of timeline. I do it on my boredom timeline. Yeah, no, that's great. I I think it's powerful to hear that because I think for people that are interested in a lot of things, it can be hard to reconcile those interests with your career with what you're calling the boredom timeline because sometimes you we get bored when when there's so many interesting things that our attention drifts to yeah and to quote denzel washington from that will smith thing when <laughs> you're when you're on top and you're bored i, I added the bored part that's yeah. when the devil will come get you and he's right <laughs> every time i've ever looked around and go yeah i got this i'm cool i can do this it the arrogance <laughs> of that thought train of thought always always in my experience winds up causing some kind of mistake that i made that I wound up getting beat up for. Yeah. And honestly, I probably deserve it. It's my own damn fault. Because I got arrogant, I got complacent, I got stupid, and it's my own fault. Yeah. Well, well, since you are a money guy, you're interested in all things finance, and creative people generally struggle with the whole notion of finances. Uh, What are some things that filmmakers, and I'll just kind of extend that into creative people, whether they're on the crew or maybe they're like a content producer, what do they need to know to start making money? In the beginning of your career, it's going to be finding a job that will pay you that's not being an uber driver or a waiter or a waitress <laughs> right i mean you have to be in the grind you have to be around people who are in powerful positions and making movies and tv that's just reality uh you get those jobs because you are able to emulate the people you work for in some way where they don't have to do the majority of their work so if you're a writer you're not going to pitch your ideas to anybody in fact in the beginning they're all going to say oh no that's so cute we've done that already <laughs> Even if your idea is brilliant and they want to do it, they're still going to tell you, yeah, no, thank you. You're very kind for participating. Now here, please do the work I asked you to do, which was to write this draft so I don't have to actually sit down and write it because that's a laborious (laughs) process, right? Yes. So if you're a writer, that's the reality of what it is. In time, as you excel and you progress and you become a creator yourself, then you'll have the opportunity to pitch ideas. But you're going to do that having worked for someone who may, in, in quotes, stole your idea. And I say in quotes, because 
they're not actually stealing your idea. They're just helping push your idea forward, but they're going to take credit for it. And they're probably going to get paid as a result of it. Mm-hmm. But then someone in the room is going to go, wait a minute, that man or woman didn't create this project. They did. So let's go talk to them instead of that guy, right? That happens and that's reality. And then you'll have an opportunity to pitch. So I think as, when you're early on in your career trying to make a living, you just have to understand that you're working for somebody else and your brilliant ideas are just going to have to wait. And the time scales of careers in Hollywood are slow. And when you're in it, they seem slow, but they are meteoric by any other standard in any other industry. You could go from being nobody, especially actors, and to some extent directors, but not writers and not producers, and to a lesser extent, directors. They don't happen overnight. You hear all the time, yeah, I had an overnight success. It took me 10 years, right? <laughs> right. It's true. And you just have to stay persistent and you just have to be patient about it and keep, you know, ideas are not hard. It's executing that executing mm-hmm. them that is hard. If you have a shortage of ideas, you're not a creative person, right? Creative people have a shortage of time and too damn many ideas to execute. So they have to pick, <laughs> they have to pick what idea they're actually going to execute on. So I think early on, that's part of it. It's hard to make a living in entertainment. It just is. And if you're making yeah. your own content, whether it's you're doing pods or you're writing or whatever, you're directing, making movies, making YouTube or TikTok or whatever. It's mm-hmm. it's a time-consuming business and you will it will suck out every ounce of time and energy you have. It just is. That's the way it is. I've seen it in features, seen it in television, I see it in short form content. Doesn't matter. It's just a different time scale. So find the people who can help you with the with the drudgery in the background, right? The stuff about paying the bills and the bookkeeping and keeping a calendar and a schedule for you, those kinds of things. That's the stuff you can do once you're in the grind and making money. But you always have to be looking at your your career as a business. You're an entrepreneur in entertainment, always. Whether you're a grip, you're electric, you're an actor, you're a writer, whatever, you have a business. Top line is revenue in, bottom line is profit. Your expenses have to be less than your income. And if they are not, you will ultimately implode like any other business. You have to operate that way. Amazing. It's like perfect for everyone to hear. Thank you for that. Yeah. And it's hard. Yeah, it is I mean, hard. You do it. You do this. You yeah. you understand that part of it. Yeah. To, to day in, day out, weekly produce anything just takes a lot of time and energy. It does. And, and what I've always done in my career is I've supported those people and that's probably been the reason I have been successful and worked over and over with creatives, which is I don't stick my nose in the creative. The creatives <laughs> tell me, I want to go do that. And I say, okay, how can I make that happen with this limited amount of time and money that some financier, studio, or network's been given me? How do I figure that out? How do I, so that the creatives can stay in their, what I call the creative soup, right? They're going to want to sit in the jacuzzi and just marinate on their ideas. <laughs> and they're making a soup in the process of doing that. I stay out of the creative soup. I support the person who uh, is the head of that creative soup as best I can and let them do their thing. And that's the thing I've noticed with creatives is that they have 100 ideas. 90 of them are pretty terrible. 10 are good, two are amazing. You have to figure out what are the two amazing ideas and how do you convince them that those are the two that they need to pursue and continue with? Because sometimes creatives will pick the other 90 that are terrible that they want to mm-hmm. pursue and you just have to try to figure out how to get them over that hump, right? Yeah. So 
The creatives that are successful stay in the creative. They don't get distracted by the nonsense. It doesn't mean they're blind to it. That doesn't mean someone's writing their own checks for them. It just means that they're not in the weeds, but they're looking at, okay, I got to pay my rent. I got to pay the bills. I have a business manager who helps me with that. And I make stupid money, but (laughs) how do I exactly make sure that I'm not getting ripped off and not spend a lot of time actually writing my own checks? That's the commonality. That's the common thread. They offload the non-creative, uninteresting things that they don't like from a 10-hour-a-week job to a 10-minute-a-week job, but they're still in control of it, they're still focused on it, and they're still paying attention to it, but somebody else is doing the day-to-day, and they're the ones Mm -hmm. actually approving stuff and and moving money to cover it. Fascinating. Yeah. The creative stay in the creative. That's all they do. And they let the people around them who are good at what they do, from editorial to physical logistics to finance to whatever it is, They actually stay out of it, but they still manage it. They don't control it, like hang on to it, like by the neck. They just kind of hang on to the tail. The tiger's tail. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) it's exhausting. I'll tell you, working in this business, working in production is exhausting. And there will will come a day when you look around and go, do I really want to continue to live my life this way? And that's a powerful question to ask. It'll come when you get to be about 40. It comes with everybody. And the other thing I say to people who come into my world that I work with or who I coach, or I don't really coach, but who I teach from my book, is I say to them, you have an expiration date. That expiration date will come either because the industry says you're too old and your ideas are hashed and they're uninteresting and you need to go someplace else, or you'll look around and go, God, I'm exhausted. Why am I so tired? Because you have been working so hard for so many years or even decades. So you have to remember that that out plan is coming and it's going to come when you're young. You're still going to have another 40 or 50 years of your life where you're going to have to be productive before you can collect social security or retirement or whatever. So you have to figure out how are you going to make that transition? Cause you're going to go from making stupid money. Cause most everybody <laughs> who succeeds in this business makes good yeah. money. You're going to go from that to, you know, for I'll give you an example, a Please. carpenter who works on a TV show, building sets makes a, anywhere from a hundred to $200,000 a year working 30 weeks a year, right? Wow. That's just, just because of the overtime and the meal penalties mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. Once you get into the union grind, if that same carpenter were to go be a hammer making houses in West LA, they might make $40,000 a year if they're lucky. And they're competing yeah. with immigrant labor who will even work for less, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they'll make 60. So how are you going to go from making 150 to making 60 and still live the lifestyle where you're not going to be making, you know, where you're spending more than you're making? That's a question you have to ask yourself when you start in this business and you have to know that that date is coming and it's coming earlier than most people. Most people, it happens when they're 65. For you, it's probably going to happen when you're 40 or 45 because it's an exhausting life. So how do you see technology changing the game? Because you mentioned the shift from movie business to content business, you know, does technology provide a new way to get into the business? Oh, for sure. So for the first time in the history of the human race, and in particular, the business of making content, dating back to, you know, people around a fire beating a drum and telling stories, right? (laughs) Right. For the first time in the history of the human race, that system is available to anybody at a, at a scale that's gargantuan, like 3 billion people if you're using Facebook or YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. At a scale that's amazing and uh, at a price that's really inexpensive. So the barrier to entry has pretty much disappeared, especially mm-hmm. if you have time. You can make movies a la Sean Baker, who's an award-winning director, 
um, he made um, The Florida Project and won a bunch of awards for it a few years back, probably five or six. He made that movie, uh, he made his movie prior to that on a cell phone in the streets of Los Angeles using a, tra uh, a transsexual woman that he was following, uh, a narrative film. Um, anyway, point I'm making is Sean Baker didn't go out and look for money. He had been in that grind before and didn't like it. So he decided, I'm going to make them my movie using my phone because I want to tell the story. That's mm -hmm. now possible for everybody. It's not easy. It's not. It's hard to convince people to open their wallet and pay you for your content. But mm -hmm. for the first time, you can you can create your content, you can cut it, you can distribute it, and you collect money for it for a price or in systems that are pretty inexpensive, where yeah. they may cost you a couple hundred bucks a month. Whereas it used to cost a couple hundred thousand dollars to do the exact same thing. So it's easier. That just means there's more of it. So our business mm -hmm. has become high volume, low margin, and you have to convince people to be uh, that you're compelling and that they should open their wallet to pay you. And in order to do that, you got to have six things, right? A website, a payment rail. There's a list. Of, they're, they're on my website. I can point you to that, that article. But um, I believe... The future of our industry will eliminate the gatekeepers at the studios and the networks in such a way that you can build a business, not huge, but you can build a good business that could pay you and your family to live and make your content and continue to offer it to people direct to consumer for, the, for a good long time. And I think that is where our, our industry is changing. Netflix, uh, studios, the streamers generally, not just Netflix, but the streamers, the networks, the studios, they're not going to be the gatekeepers in the future. And you can build a big, they're not going to be the only gatekeepers. They'll always be the, the gatekeepers, right? For big money projects. But yeah. you can make a good living um, selling content, selling swag that's related to your content. Could be mugs, could be t-shirts, could be keychains. Like I said, I'm the guy with the most obvious idea in the room, but, <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of them, right? <laughs> I don't love Patreon. I feel like that's to some extent begging and i don't know that that right. is a sustainable model but if it's a model that works now then fabulous do it yeah. but if you can figure out a way to make content and sell product or tickets to your content in the background that's direct to consumer and that's coming so you just got to understand that you can't do everything you got to hire people to help you and you need to make more money than you spend it's that is economic econ 101 it's it's accounting <laughs> you know Revenue in, cost of goods minus, expenses minus, <laughs> equals profit. Profit is what you get to take home. That's what you pay taxes on, right? It sounds so interesting and boring, and it is, but it's what allows us to stay in the business of making content. Well, Tim, as we wrap up our time together, what's one thing you want listeners to take away from our conversation, apart from the excellent equation that you just gave us? <laughs> um, you know, there are dozens of people, including your friends and family who will tell you, you can't work in Hollywood. And what that is, is their fear for you of failure or their own fear of failure. It's not about you. It's about them. So, you know, you always hear the story about, you know, ignore everyone. You're going to be huge. Yeah. No, don't ignore them, but understand where that's coming from. It's their own fear, jealousy, or whatever emotion that's about them and not you. Most people don't give a shit about you. They care about themselves. And what they're thinking when they're talking about you, they're actually reflecting themselves into you. So care about yourself and do what feeds you and makes you happy without you know, alienating your friends or family and being immoral or illegal. 
Well said. Well, final question for you, Tim. Uh, what book or podcast or movie is currently blowing your mind right now? Blowing my mind. You know what's blowing my mind lately is we, we, what's the one? Not we work. I'm going to say that, but we crash. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, Jared Leto. I had no idea that was him. My girlfriend was like, who is this guy? And I'm like, I have no idea. And I'm like, <laughs> Jared Leto, holy cow. I'm amazed. The performance is amazing. But not only that, we work and we crash is an indictment of the, the cycle of economics we're living in now and that we have been living in for the past five years. It's not natural. It's coming to an end. It will explode. It will implode. And we're all going to be looking around with our hands out and pulling our pockets inside out going, holy cow, where'd all the money go? That's coming. So be careful. We crash <laughs> well is a said. perfect example of it. Yeah, I saw the documentary about WeWork and that was pretty mind blowing. It was. And yeah. WeWork was a stupid IPO that was never worth <laughs> 3 billion. In fact, that's what it went out at. It went out at 3 billion, not 60 that they wanted it to go out at. <sighs> yeah. Tech tech money just blows my mind some days. It's, it's like, a printing press. There's a great book yeah. called Zero Sum Zero Margin Economy, which describes mm -hmm. the tech the business that tech is, which is for every additional person you add to your revenue, it costs nothing to add them. Mm. That is the business we're in. That's the business they're in. Mm. So fascinating. Completely different cycle. Yeah. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being a guest on Getting Work to Work and, and just illuminating the world of Hollywood and movies and television. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. It's my pleasure. I love doing it. And if anybody has any you know, questions or whatever, they can always get me at timtortora.com. There's a question and answer form at the bottom that comes to me or my admin. And the, my last name is spelled T-O-R-T-O-R-A. And you can get the book at career.timtortora.com. If there's one question that I'm reflecting on as this conversation comes to a close, it's what Tim said in the very beginning. How can this be different? Whether you've been at your work for two years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, get into the habit of getting curious about what you're doing, seeing what other industries, other professions are doing, bring those lessons learned and create experiments that you can learn from. Learn to listen to others, but most importantly, ask yourself this, how can I continually help others? There's so many things that Tim shared in this episode. I'm going to have to listen to it again because there are so many nuggets of wisdom present. And I hope that you'll reach out to Tim if you have any questions. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.